YouTube is such a time sink. I started watching videos about bonsai trees last night, Chris. <laughs> Wait a minute, Alex. Bonsai trees. There's videos about bonsai trees? <laughs> no, sir. No, I will not have it. Thing is, right, there's, you know, there are many, many hobbies that over decades, millennia, whatever, have been knowledge passed down from person to person. And I think these days, it's it's uh, YouTube is just an incredible resource that anybody can learn anything about anything. And uh, you were saying you went down a new rabbit hole yourself. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny that you did this because just before we started, I was binging old diesel bus repair videos. How strange is this? So let me tell you about these guys. They're like middle American bros that are just, you know, the, the most down to earth guys that uh, go out into fields and find old broken down buses, like diesel buses that have been parked there from maybe 15 years or whatever. Like the bus I was watching today was from before World War II. And they go fix them all up and get them running down the road to get them to their shop where they can restore them. I suppose that's a good thing about quote unquote simpler, older technologies. There's there's not going to be masses of electronics and laptops required to fix it. It's all mechanical stuff, right? Yeah, and kind of to your point, I've used YouTube now as a resource for figuring out how to fix my RV, for doing a lot of the home automation, little tricks and little things I needed just to figure something out, or even Zelda. I mean, I hate YouTube, but I love YouTube. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a chronicle of some of the best and worst bits of humanity, I suspect. <laughs> well, so it sounds like you have been uh, sucked into several rabbit holes this week, then. Yeah, the, the hard thing for me is like just observing something like that, like bonsai trees is, is a, an example that I don't know why the algorithm decided that Alex wants to learn about bonsai trees this week, but it did. And I clicked on the video. Uh, so I guess it was right. The algorithm. And uh, yeah, two hours later, <laughs> I knew everything about material and wire, wire selection and <laughs> clippers. It's funny how that works. It's funny. Can I tell you about something I did last week after our show? Yeah, sure. I've decided to take the RV on a project off-grid test drive just to see if the basics would work. Would my camera mounts hold? Would the sensors stay up? How did things work when I actually went offline? Because I've been building all of this to be offline while I'm online. And so I've never really tested it. So I took the RV out on a half-day mini road trip last week. And we found a spot by the river that we took our bus down by the river and we did a, a camping kind of just set up for lunch for about an hour and a half, totally offline, no cellular signal. And there was some positive things I discovered in this test and some negative things. I'm, I'm very happy to say my camera and sensor mounts all held. Nothing fell down in the Richter four earthquake that we are going down the road, but there was a problem that I didn't catch at first. So I'm that guy. I pull back in. I'm like, look at us, successful test flight. We also did some other maintenance things on the RV. So I'm like feeling like, look at me. I'm taking care of stuff. I'm testing stuff. It all worked. My big plan. Until about the next morning when I realized things in the RV weren't working quite right. Uh, and it turns out I have to solve a little problem. When I disconnect the RV from shore power and the lithium battery power kicks in, that transition from shore power to inverter power from the battery causes a real momentary blip in the power. And it's not enough to knock the Raspberry Pis offline. All the Raspberry Pis stayed online. But the disks went offline. 
and I didn't catch it till the next day. So it took me a while to figure out what was going on. And I don't really know how I'm going to solve this problem because a UPS would be the obvious solution in a home. But in the RV, a UPS is no good. They freak out when you're running them off of battery via an inverter. They do not like that. Plus, it's a horrible, inefficient use of power. You lose it in that conversion just like 40%. It's really bad. So I got to come up with some way to keep power steady and smooth to these Raspberry Pis and their discs, but I, but that's something that's not a UPS. That's uh, that's an interesting problem. I'm sat here trying to think of something, and I'm glad that you said UPS is out because that's the obvious thing. Yeah, I've tried that. I even tried like a small little APC one that's really essentially just a portable battery in a UPS housing. Still no good. Do you have an Omnicharge or am I making that up? No, I don't. It's essentially a UPS with a battery bank smushed together. Uh, and this thing might be sufficient for you? I know another route is there are Raspberry Pi hats that have a lithium battery on them. So you power the Pi through the hat, and then the hat provides power via the GPIO pins. All right, I'm going to send you a link to this OmniCharge thing. I think you need to have a look at this. It's got a small little OLED screen in it. Um, so it tells you all sorts of cool stats. <laughs> you got me already. <laughs> like, uh, you know, the battery percentage is not just three or four little blinky LEDs. It's an actual percentage. It tells you the amount of current and wattage being drawn from the battery in real time. It supports pass-through, so you can charge and uh, withdraw power from it at the same time. The USB ports support quick charge. Um, I don't know what version, but they support quick charge. And they, it comes in several different sizes. So there's like a 20,000 milliamp version. Um, there are big ones, small ones, all sorts of different things. Um, it has a couple of other cool things. Now, the one that I have, I got as a Kickstarter about three years ago. And it, mine has an AC inverter built into it. But the newer ones have USB-C out that support power delivery. Oh, boy. That's it right there, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's going to be your solution. Uh, so this is this is essentially like the coolest battery bank, like portable battery pack I've ever seen. It's pretty sweet. Have you seen the big mother that they make as well? Uh, if you scroll down under the Pro Series, uh-huh. <laughs> there's the Omni Ultimate, which has got like a little solar panel in it, I think. And uh, that's how many? 38,000 milliamp hours. <laughs> I do remember this from when it was a Kickstarter. I am very happy to see they made it because when it, I was very tempted when it was a Kickstarter. They just kind of came out during that time when I was on a Kickstarter break. This is legit. This is great. And USB-C, I know the Pi 4 requires a slightly higher voltage than normal, but boy, that... Mm. All right, Alex, thank you. That might be what I do. I think long-term, and I'm just kind of waiting to redo my power system overall, but I think long-term, the, the, it's just power these things via DC somehow. Just go direct off the batteries and just get the inverter out of the picture. Well, OmniCharge has a DC out as well. That's great. Okay. So I've actually charged my MacBook with a direct DC to MagSafe cable, and it works just fine because you can um, manipulate the voltage in the firmware using the, the OLED screen. You can manipulate the output voltage of the DC port um, just on on the OmniCharge. It's- Stop it. You're kidding me. No. I know. I think this is exactly what you need. It's like a UPS that is not a UPS, <laughs> if that makes sense. Well, how's your wallet been this week? Uh, we're still recovering from the TV. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, that takes a hit. Are you enjoying the hell out of that thing? Oh, OLED. If you are on the fence about 
buying an OLED versus an LED TV, I, I think it's genuinely worth the money. Mm. It's like an extra thousand or whatever, but whew, and, and it is a lot of money, but it's, it's really, really worth it. It, it we've been watching a lot of, um, 4k H uh, high encode video codec or something. H E V C is the acronym. Oh, HVAC. Yeah. 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 What does what does that stand for again? Well, I think it's uh, just like a newer version of H.264, Essentially, it's like H.265. I could be wrong. Selfhosted.show slash contact if you want to correct me. Uh, so I've been watching a lot of um, Blu-rays that I've been storing for a while through my PlayStation Four, and I must say it's really something. You know, if you're watching some of those David Attenborough shows, there was one particular scene we were watching. Uh, where he was in doing like heat map cameras of tigers in inner city Mumbai, and the blacks were just as it was as if the screen was off. It's it's genuinely not uh, hyperbole. It's it's really something. So, hmm. but now the coolest thing about this TV is that it integrates directly with a home assistant integration. How has that been? So that's what I really want to know. Yeah, I've been going on a huge home assistant binge this week, which we'll get to. Uh, well, now I guess. <laughs> yeah, let's do it now. Let's do it now because it really kind of all ties into this, doesn't it? Yeah. There was a new version of Home Assistant released, 0.102, which has a few new interesting integrations in it. Uh, the principal one that I'm looking at is the WLED integration. But before we get to that, I'm going to touch on the LG WebOS integration. Now, this allows me from my Home Assistant interface to turn the TV on, turn the TV off. Okay, that doesn't sound that amazing. But it lets me select the input of the TV from Home Assistant, but it's also contextually aware of what the screen is playing as well. What? If I'm watching a YouTube video, the title of that video shows up in my Home Assistant. See, I can do that only with Plex videos right now, nothing else. So you... Works for Plex too. So WebOS is reporting back... How does how does it know? I mean, this TV must be watching. <laughs> well, you've got to create a developer key or some kind of like um, API key to let the integration work. But part of the reason that these integrations are so great is that they have knowledge of the APIs that these different platforms use. So they're able to take advantage of API-specific features to my specific model number of TV. And this must only work when you're using the apps built into the TV. Well, I can change the input to HDMI. And then it doesn't know what's being played if I was playing it on the Shield, for example. Right. But then it would just tell you in Home Assistant that you're on that input? Right. Yes. Um, So what that means is I can set up some quite interesting automations now. You know, this is getting to the territory where uh, it's it's getting a little bit Iron Man, you know, a little bit Tony Stark, where I can just set up a scene and it will dim the lights, change the lights to a certain color and brightness, uh, change the input on the TV and then the TV using audio return channel will turn on my receiver and set that to the correct input. And it, you know, then it will turn off all the lights in the rest of the house that might otherwise reflect in my screen. Uh, it can set the uh, temperature in the house to a certain level if I just want to get cozy. You know, it, it's just a case of thinking about how all these different facets of your house link together and how you can just create automations that improve your quality of life. If you would have had this conversation with me eight years ago, I would have thought you were being a silly, fussy man right now. Um, you know, 
turn off some lamps, you're good to go. How much effort does it take to walk around, flip off a few sw- light switches? By the way, these lamps probably would have had fluorescent bulbs in them back then. And I just would have said, you know, what's the big deal? Um, but now, having gone deep into this with my own home assistant setup and my own smart light solutions, it, it feels like it has it has made our home feel more like a home. It feels cozier. It, I don't know. It, it's I was surprised by what a difference it made in in the feel of the place. And I, I I don't think I don't think I would have appreciated that as much had I not just given this a go. And I think sometimes uh home automation is conflated with remote control unfairly. Um remote control is just the beginning, you know. Being able to turn that lamp on and off is is fine, but it's when you start integrating everything in one place that it's the magic really starts to happen. Right. If you want just to remote control a light, get yourself a clapper. <laughs> Job done. <laughs> right. We're not trying to make clapper 2.0 here. We're, we're trying to actually make your home contextually aware. And that's why the integration with the TV is so key, because I assume you must be able to kick off automations based on the sensor data from the television. So you can have that stuff happen automatically. When you switch to an input, you could have those lights change without, I mean, it's not even like something you have to invoke, right? That's a good point, yes, because, you know, Home Assistant has the concept of sensors built into it. So there are entities, which are things like my light bulbs and the TV, um, but then each of those things report back to Home Assistant to say what their current status is. You can then use that sensor information, maybe it's a binary sensor that something's either on or off, or maybe it's a temperature sensor that something, or, or a humidity sensor uh, that's returning a certain value and then you can have home assistant constantly reacting to those sensor inputs um and very quickly you end up with a a complex house of cards sure but it's actually very easy to to manipulate so the other change that i've made this week is that i've switched from a docker container on my ubuntu system to hasio Okay, so I was wondering what led to this, because I have debated this a lot, because there's a lot of advantages to using Hass.io versus vanilla Home Assistant. And just briefly, I would I would describe the Home Assistant version that I have installed as vanilla, using the Docker image, and it's just the project with no plugins, no add-ons. Hass.io is more of a community spin that has some plugins that are very easy to install, but it's a much broader thing. It's it's more than just the core project. And I just, I debate that. I'd say it's a platform. Hasio is, is the Home Assistant platform. And what made you decide to switch from vanilla to the platform? Well, I was browsing YouTube, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it! And, uh, you know, there's that Dr. Z's guy that releases a million YouTube videos a week. I don't know where he finds the time. I think it's all he does. <laughs> And, and he's, he's just browsing around, going into the Hasio store and installing, you know, add-ons left, right and center. And I'm like, why am I not doing that myself? It just, that just looks like too much fun. So which plugin though, there must've been a plugin or two that said, okay, this is worth the hassle because I've reviewed those plugins and I've thought to myself, eh, eh, not quite worth it. There's a few. So, um, the, the main one for me was the VS code plugin. You can, direct from the Home Assistant interface, click a button that lets you load up Visual Studio Code in the same browser window that has syntax auto-completion and highlighting directly 
supporting home assistant. So if you, if you start writing an entity um, oh. in the configuration file, it will tell you that you've missed a required field or something like that. That's so slick. Mm-hmm. So it's a visual code, visual studio code editor for home assistant. Pretty much. Yeah. It's just a normal VS code instance under the hood using the, uh, there's a container that you can run VS code in. And I think they're just using that under the hood because if you log into the um, appliance that's running Home Assistant now um, under the hood and you do a Docker PS, it's just running a dozen containers under the hood. So Home Assistant on HassIO is still running in a container. You're just abstracted away from it. Well, so this is why I thought to myself, I said, you know, Chris, if you ever really had to have one of these plugins, you could just go get that container. Couldn't I just run that container? Of course you could, but you have to go and, I mean, it's, it's a very small barrier to entry, but you know, you have to add that to your compose file. You've got to configure then all the plugins in VS code to be compatible with home assistant, set up the remote access, blah, 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 blah. And I don't get to just browse a repo and just hit install either. Yeah. Now the other thing that is often overlooked with UI based stuff is discoverability. So in the uh, Hassio add-on store, there are only nine or ten plugins. Tasmo Admin is a really cool one that I've also been using to update all of my Tasmota devices. ESP Home is another cool one. It allows you to configure single board, like Node MCU, ESP8266 type ESP devices uh, with only a few lines of YAML. That thing is super duper cool. There's Node Red in there as well, and AdGuard Home built right into Home Assistant. Um, but the the main one that I saw Doctor Z's using uh, is something called Hacks. Now this is Home Assistant Community Store, and this is nothing to do with like a Hasio necessarily. This you, you could install this on any Home Assistant instance, but Home Assistant Community Store is what it sounds like. You give it a GitHub personal access token. And then it will go and crawl GitHub for every GitHub repo with a certain label or a certain tag. I don't know exactly how it works, but it's amazing. Yeah, so that's at hacks.xyz, H-A-C-S dot X-Y-Z. I will throw a link in, in our show notes. This is really cool looking. Oh, man. I kind of want to get this set up. There are hundreds of things in GitHub that you would never have found otherwise. And this thing will crawl the APIs and find them for you. So it sounds like you've been using the hell out of this thing to manage a bunch of the stuff you've... I mean, a lot of that is right up your alley. Yeah. What was the migration like from Home Assistant Vanilla to Hass.io? I'm rebuilding from the ground up. (gasps) Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, God. Well, I mean, in January, which is when I started with Home Assistant, I didn't know on earth I was doing. Some would argue I still don't, but I'm (laughs) a little more familiar with the, the situation now than I was then. Uh, We mentioned a little earlier that um, one of the new integrations I was most excited about was something called WLED, W-L-E-D. Now, why is that exciting, Alex? Well, in my Linux Fest Northwest talk, I built a smart set of LEDs that were using MQTT. In fact, we talked about it last episode. Um, MQTT is wonderful for contextually aware stuff. So, you know, the, the LED controller knows what Home Assistant's up to and vice versa. But WLED's better because it's a native Home Assistant API integration as opposed to MQTT, which sort of sits on top as another layer. That alone means that the performance is better. But 
couple it with the fact that the WLED developer provides a pre-compiled binary that you can just flash with ESP tool in about 10 minutes end to end. And it's just wonderful. Okay. That does sound really nice. Super quick. So you get a new device, not a big deal. Yeah. So there have been two traditional ways to do it. One is the custom Arduino code, which is what I did, uh, which I used the bruh automation stuff. Um, And the other was ESP Home, which is why I installed it and started looking at it this week. Um, And with ESP Home, you gain simplicity of configuration, but you lose configurability for things like effects and uh, that kind of thing. But with WLED, if you really want to go in and change, you know, like the data pin or something like that, let's say you've got a node MCU that's got four or five sensors on it, as well as controlling your LEDs. Uh, you can go in and compile a custom firmware just the same as you could with the custom Arduino code that I was using before. Or you can just flash the pre-compiled binary. It is amazing. That is really handy. There's all kinds of great ideas on the site too, ESPHome.io. Now, I read a blog post about WLED this week, uh, which we'll put a link to in the show notes. Um, and essentially, for $16, you can build yourself a smart LED strip that is fully compatible with Home Assistant that you own completely. Really nice. Those things, I mean, $15? <laughs> I, I mean, you can get some really crappy LED strips for around that price on Amazon, but not ones that are fully... Uh, automated. So this thing, I guess it it joins your Wi-Fi and then it starts communicating. Um, how much? I mean, what, what, f- give a fair description on the quality of those LEDs, though. When we're talking, because like that's a big thing with LED lights is the quality of light that they give off. Some of them are less good than others, um, but that depends entirely on the LED strip themselves that you buy. I mean, are you including that in the cost when you say $15? <laughs> well, yeah, a, a 300 long LED strip with 300 pixels, so that's one microcontroller per LED, is $28 on Amazon. Okay. Oh, that's all right. So the reason I said 16 was because I generally only put 20 or 30 off a single microcontroller because I, you know, I want small mood lighting. I don't necessarily want a whole long strip. If you're going to do a long strip, I would go with a 12 volt LED strip. These ones in particular are five volt. And why that's particularly nice is you don't need any buck converters or anything like that. You can just plug it straight into USB and you're good to go. Here's a little comparison. The TP-Link Casa smart LED strip lights is what they call them, uh, which are 6.6 feet long, $70. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And that's using, obviously, with their cloud service, too. It's probably, Casa generally stuff works pretty well with Home Assistant, but just to kind of give you a comparison. So if if you wanted to do a lot of LED lighting, that really adds up. And that's kind of the great thing, is like, if you can do it at that price, you could do a lot of it. Yes, yep, you absolutely can. Now, I'm not quite finished talking about how awesome WLED is yet. Um, so you flash the firmware, and then... Uh, what makes this be- way better than um, anything that I've used before is that it turns your Node MCU or your D1 Mini into a mini wireless access point. You then connect to that with your phone, navigate to an IP address in your browser, and then you can configure everything about the LED strip straight from your phone. You don't need Home Assistant necessarily because they also make an official WLED app for Android and iOS. 
So I was looking through the firmware and there's a bunch of super cool stuff in, in here. Um, and bear in mind, this is running off a $6 microcontroller. <laughs> okay. It will integrate natively with Philips Hue, with Blink, with MQTT, with Alexa. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, that's how you do it. <laughs> I try not to set it off for people, but I probably, I probably do. Your Echo devices. <laughs> and then you can go in and configure, you know, the specific number of LEDs that you have. It does current current estimation um so it'll say like you're using 150 milliamps right now you gotta really watch it with those led lights alex <laughs> <laughs> some some of them actually you do so there are some microcontrollers that can draw up to 30 watts on the whole strip just on idle so you do you do have to pick them with care these ones are, i picked so that they're fine but there's a video from a guy called the hookup on youtube and he goes through all the different types of leds which we'll put a link to in the show notes uh, he goes through all different types of LEDs and their phantom uh, current draw and all the rest of it. So, you know, there's a there are some things you've got to be aware of, but I, I just can't overstate how excited I am by WLED and Home Assistant this week. Like, I haven't been this excited about a project, and I'm talking about Home Assistant here, since I discovered Docker for the first time. Mm. What specifically do you think this week brought that up again? Because I've been feeling that way. A lot. I think for me, it's just that I I think to myself, oh, I wish I could integrate with this, or I wish I could control that. I go and look for it, and it's there. It's already there. Someone's already done it. And there are products I've been looking about maybe buying, um, like some Kef speakers maybe, that have like the Kef LS50 wireless speakers. There's a, a native integration already there in Home Assistant for these speakers I don't even own yet. And it's like... It just feels to me like I was watching the State of the Union uh, Home Assistant um, YouTube video. I spend a lot of time watching YouTube. Are you getting that? I'm noticing that. It's a theme. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just just looking at the excitement of these people who are actively working on the project. It's in the top 10 in the Octoverse for contributors of all GitHub projects. It's up there with Ansible and Kubernetes, for crying out loud. It just feels to me like everybody is waking up to the fact that having a open home automation system is just awesome. And I love that. And I think it's also compounded by all these different manufacturers have their own apps and their own cloud services that are all their own silos. And it's nice to have something that can aggregate and bring them all together. On top of that, it's sort of like the, the deal is changing constantly on these devices. You and I were just recently discussing that Wise had to announce they're removing person detection from their cameras. So I bought this last round because I was really impressed that Wise managed to develop on-camera person detection on a $25 camera. I was like, all right, I'm in. Well, I got an email. It says they have to pull that because the company they partnered with to develop that AI on the Edge devices has exercised a clause in their contract, and Wise has to ship out firmwares now that removes that feature. What's that going to mean for you and I who are running the custom RTSP firmware? Well, this is back to my main point is I feel like I'm insulated from these types of changes. When a, when a company decides they can no longer support feature A or product Y, I'm not impacted by that because the way I have my system set up is I flashed it with that RTSP firmware. And I'm leaving that firmware, Alex. <laughs> I'm not changing it. I've configured my network to record everything to the Pi locally. I don't use the cloud service and I actually have everything blocked at the DNS level so they can't even communicate with the WISE service. <laughs> oh, good man. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm I'm leaving it, and then I'll let them sort it out. They they say they will try to add person detection back in 2020, but it's going to be cloud based, likely, and not on the camera. And I I much prefer on camera because then it's in my actual recordings too. Maybe I'm missing something here. Why do they need an API for motion detection if it's on camera? It won't be with the new system. Is what the implication is. No, but right now, so how can they? How can they pull a feature that's local? That's what I don't understand. Their, their new firmware will remove the functionality. The, so they license the tech to do the person detection. Because to get it working on these incredibly low-powered cameras, it was like a feat of engineering. It was something that Wise was extremely proud of. And it's kind of like the tech that can do it. And there's really nobody else that's developed person detection, human, you know, object detection that can run on processors that slow. So do we think that um, we'll be able to still buy those wise cams for the next year or two and flash that? That's a great point. I bet you if you bought them within a certain time frame, they would probably ship with the person detection firmware. Yeah, but even if they don't, maybe we can install the current RTSP firmware that you and I have. Yeah, I did. I did save it offline just in case it ever disappeared. Yeah, good idea. So it's possible. I wonder if you go too far ahead, though, in the firmwares, if you can't go back. Yeah. You know, say it's down the road, it's firmware 1.8, and the RTSP is like version 0.9. Maybe that could be a challenge. So it may be worth, if you've been on the fence, just pulling the trigger now. Not to change the topic, but just for a second, this crossed my mind. It's funny how these these things we do, like, I'll get a new TV. Or for me, it was, I want to solve heating problems. They just spiral into a bigger and bigger project. And if you're willing to do it, it can be some of the most fun. So I'm totally on board. Just a big shout out to Home Assistant. We've talked a lot about it recently, but it's just because we are so elated about it. What do you say we do an Ask SSH to round us out? Let's do it. All right. Kai wrote in. He says, peeps. (laughs) Kai calls us peeps, Alex. (laughs) Hey, peeps. uh, If I wanted to set up a simple Cody-based Media Center Raspberry Pi with an external SSD drive connected to a TV via HDMI or HDMI, as you would say. Joe is triggered right now. (laughs) Would a Raspberry Pi 3B with one gigabytes of RAM, one gigabytes, be powerful enough to do that? Uh, He says, because I have a spare one, or is it time to get a new Raspberry Pi 4? I think it's on the edge, actually, to be honest with you. On the edge for what? Because direct play, the Pi 3 will do most anything, even 4K H.265, right? Yeah, Pi 3 with video drivers would um it's generally the bit rates that start to be an issue however if you're looking at standard 720p content or if you're 1080p and it's stuff that's below 15 megabits uh, i think the raspberry pi 3 with cody would would kill it it'd be great it would eat through that stuff no problem especially if you're feeding it via an ssd on usb 3 and you know the thing kai that i would say here is you already have one so it would take you about 10 minutes to find out if it's suitable if you're like Alex over here and you're rocking 4K and you want high bit rate, you want, you know, really good looking picture, I, I would be tempted then at that point to throw in for a Pi 4 because looking at your overall setup, the Raspberry Pi 4 is going to be like the least expensive aspect of it. It's still even cheaper than the SSD. Um, but like Alex says, I mean, give it a go with the 3. If you're not looking at ultra high quality, high bit rate stuff or even serving to multiple people, if you don't plan to install like Jellyfin or Plex, Pi 3 is going to kill it. If you wanted to go up a notch and you wanted to do something like Jellyfin and Cody, 
which is a nice little kumbaya, and you wanted to do it to a couple of TVs in your house, that's when I'd probably go over to a Pi 4. What's crazy, you can do it with either one, though. I mean, that's where we're at today. Yeah, it is crazy. But uh, one important hardware difference, of course, is that the Pi 4 uses the mini or micro HDMI cables. So you'll need, you'll need a dongle for that versus the, the Pi 3. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Jeez. The, the, uh, of course, these, the other advantage would be, so that's the dongle's a downside. The advantage is, is you get better throughput to that disc on that USB 3 bus. Yeah, because the, uh, well, there's two things at play here. They've finally separated out on the Pi 4. The uh, Ethernet and the USB at last are on different buses. At last, at last, freed at last, and it makes a big difference. And then the other difference is the Pi 4 has USB-C. So you might need different cable or a better power supply. And then the, the only other thing I would sort of, it's not a word of caution, it's just something to be aware of, is the Pi 4 gets kind of toasty. And I'm going to add on to that. Even though I'm running three of them and I absolutely love them, it's early days still. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, one of the the Libre Elec project, which is a, a really slick way to do a media center on a Raspberry Pi, is just within the last couple of weeks rolling out early support for the Raspberry Pi 4. And, it, you know, that's something to consider because the Raspberry Pi 3 is solid at this point. I've been looking around and trying to find a good answer as to whether it supports the newer HDMI 2.x standards, but it looks like both are only 1.4. Um, if I'm wrong with that, please write in with uh, selfhosted.show slash contact and let me know. Yeah, or do like I did. Hashtag ask SSH on Twitter or in Telegram. We're always lurking and collecting those. I've done a neat thing on Twitter where I've taken the hashtag ask SSH and I've plugged that into Feedly and Feedly supports just treating it like an RSS feed. So as soon as when somebody posts it, it shows up in my feeds. Oh, that's cool. I should do that. I've got an if this, then that integration, but <laughs> we are such nerds. <laughs> <laughs> I might do a Feedly. That sounds good. All right. Well, Alex, I am super excited to hear about your future adventures. I've been really tempted to try out Hass.io and um, you may push me over. We'll see. And that's been selfhosted.show slash eight. Mm-hmm.